Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Infected is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash infected. Chapter 86, Free Ride Three gray vans closed in on Dew and Perry, sliding to a halt on the packed snow. Like ants rushing from a mound, biosuit-covered soldiers poured out. The police in the area moved towards the vans, but kept their distance from the bizarrely dressed men carrying the squat, lethal FNP-90 weapons. Margaret and Clarence were the first to reach Dossie and Dew. Clarence pulled his Glock sidearm and tried to cover the damaged man, but Margaret dashed in and knelt next to his charred body, her knee dipping into the steaming pool of spreading blood. She tore her eyes away from the severed penis clutched in his hand. He was still breathing, although for how long that would last she couldn't say. She'd never seen a human being so messed up yet still alive. She didn't see any triangles on him, but with all the blood and third-degree burns it was hard to tell. Yet he was alive, and that, at least, was something she could work with. She almost jumped when he spoke. Somebody's ringing the bell. I gotta go to Ajamega. Do me a favor. Open the door and let him in. Margaret swallowed hard. She could barely believe her eyes. This ravaged man, whose blood was turning the slush as red as a Slurpee, talked through a smile of sheer madness. Open up that fucking green door, you fucking bitch! Dossie's thick hand shot out fast, fast, and grabbed her rackle suit, pulling her down until his lips mashed against her visor, spreading blood and spit on the clear plastic. His wide, insane eyes were just an inch from hers. Somebody's knocking at that fucking door! Clarence smashed the butt of his Glock against Dossie's cheek, opening up yet one more wound. Dossie flinched but kept snarling, his eyes burning with the fury of pure insanity. Hit him again! Dew screamed. Clarence whacked Dossie twice more in rapid succession. The big man's grip relaxed and he fell back to the ground, eyes half-lidded, the smile still on his face. You okay, Doc? Clarence asked. Margaret fought to regain her composure her breath coming in irregular gasps. For a second, she'd been sure Dossie would rip through the suit and tear her throat out. He was so fast and so damn strong. I'm fine. She stood and waved over two soldiers who waited with a stretcher. She could only imagine what the poor man had gone through. What kind of thoughts could make a human being self-inflict that kind of damage? Margaret wondered if he'd provide any answers. She couldn't know what terrors awaited in the months to come. For Perry Dossie, the infection was over. For the rest of the world, it was only the beginning. Chapter 87 The Jumper It all happened so fast that wisps of smoke still curled from the freshly fired forty-five. Dew had done his job yet again but he didn't feel any better. He was no closer to discovering the parties responsible for this horror, for killing his partner. Dew said nothing, kept a grip on his weapon, watched Clarence Otto direct the rapid response team as they set up a small perimeter around Dossie. A third-floor window shattered outward. Dew looked up, 
saw the flame tongues billowing out, greasy black smoke roiling toward the sky. But he saw something else, something burning, something falling. A brief, flailing comet, whipping, rope-like extensions making it resemble a flaming Medusa's head. The thing hit hard against the snow-covered pavement, flames seeming to splash outward before they roared up again. He stared, disbelieving, the back of his mind already making a connection that his conscious thoughts refused to allow. The flaming thing stood, or at least tried to stand, burning, boneless legs supported a body all but obscured by jumping flames. There was a small screech, a pitiful thing, the sound a weak woman makes when she feels severe pain. A thin trail of fluid shot from the thing to land in a steaming, boiling black streak on the dirty snow. The creature shuddered once more, then popped, flaming pieces scattering across the parking lot. The pieces burned brightly like wreckage from a crashed airliner. Suddenly, Margaret was at his side, her protective helmet gone, her black hair hanging about the biosuit, an ashen look of dread on her face. Now it all makes sense, she said quietly. Oh my God, now it all makes sense. Dossie, the others, they're just hosts for these things. Do let his mind make that connection. Let himself accept the unimaginable. This was no time to start doubting the obvious, no matter how fucked up the obvious might be, and he still had a job to do. The sound of approaching men tore his attention from the dwindling bits of flame. Cops were coming on the run. Local boys, state troopers, at least a dozen, with more probably a few steps behind. Dew turned to Otto and the biosuited agents. All of them stood with guns at the ready, casting snap glances all around the parking lot, looking to see if there were more of the nightmarish creatures. Dew barked orders in his booming sergeant's voice. Get Dossie in the van! Squad 3! Police those pieces and do it now! Move! 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 The soldiers scurried to obey Dew's commands. He turned to face the cops, who closed on the burning building. He stepped forward, thinking of what bullshit to say, thinking of a way to explain the creature. But the cops rushed right past the burning pieces and through Building G's main door. Bob Zimmer sprinted up to Dew, his eyes in the flame shooting from the broken third-floor window. Did you get him? Zimmer asked. Yeah, I got him. He's dead. The cops hadn't seen the falling creature. Or if they had, they hadn't made sense of it. Perhaps they were too far away. Or perhaps, his conscience nagged him, perhaps they were too worried about the people in the burning building to care about something peculiar but obviously not human falling from the third floor window. Are there still people in there? Probably. I didn't get anybody out before Dossie ran. Zimmer didn't nod, didn't acknowledge Dew's comment. He stepped toward the building, directing other cops inside, shouting orders to the first cops emerging from the building escorting confused and scared residents. The biosuited soldiers were already dousing the pieces and scooping up what bits they could. Dew watched the last of them hop into the vans. Everyone was loaded up except for Clarence Otto and Margaret Montoya. She stared at the building, a blank look on her face. Otto stood by her side, waiting for Dew's next command. Dew pointed his finger south in the direction of the hospital. Otto put his arm around Margaret's shoulder and quickly guided her to the van that held Dossie. Dew closed the doors behind them. The vans quietly pulled away, avoiding the confused rush of policemen, then sped out of the parking lot. Somewhere in the distance, Dew heard the faint approach of sirens, ambulances, the fire department.
He looked up at the third floor window one last time. The window was all but obscured by the raging fire, flames shooting up at least 20 feet into the sky. There wouldn't be anything left in that apartment. Amid the shouting chaos, Dew calmly walked to his Buick. He shut himself inside the Buick and stared at Dossie's singed map, at the strange symbol so neatly drawn there. The symbol matched the one carved into Dossie's arm. The words, This is the place, neatly written in blue ink. It wasn't the same hand that had scrawled This is the place on the map in Dossie's apartment. This writing was clean, measured. The writing of a woman. Well, fuck me, Dew whispered. Dossie hadn't run randomly at all. There had been another infected victim in that apartment, a victim that was likely still in the apartment and burning to a crisp. She'd sheltered Dossie. They were working together. It was very possible they knew each other before the infection. They lived in the same complex, after all. But if they had not known each other before contracting the triangles, then that meant the victims could somehow identify each other, help each other. And more importantly, if they had known each other, it was possible they had independently decided that Wajamiga was the place to be. And if that was the case, then the only possible conclusion was that they wanted to go there because of the infection, or possibly the infection wanted to go there. Margaret's words replayed in his head. They're building something, she'd said. Dew thought back to the burning creature that had fallen from the third-story window, then scrambled for his big cellular. Murray answered on the first ring. Did you get him? We got him. Alive, exactly the way he wanted him. The stakes just went up. Now listen and listen good, LT. I need men in Wajamiga, Michigan, and I need them now. And none of those ATF or CIA commando wannabes. Make it Marines or Green Beret or fucking Navy SEALs, but get me men, at least a platoon and then a division, as fast as they can get there. Full combat gear, fire support too, artillery, tanks, the whole works. Oh, and choppers, lots of choppers. Dude, what the fuck is going on? And that satellite, is it redirected to Wajamiga yet? Yes, they already made a pass. The squints are looking at the images now. I'm going to take a picture of a symbol and send it to you as soon as I hang up. This symbol, that's what the squints are looking for. Got it? Yeah, I got it. And I want a surveillance van punched into that satellite. And I want it there in 30 minutes. And a chopper better pick me up in the next 15 minutes. I don't care if we have to commandeer the fucking Channel 7 eye in the sky. You get me transport ASAP. Do. I can't get you all that so fast, and you know it. You get it! You get it right fucking now! You can't believe the shit I just saw! In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.
Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Chapter 88. Party Time. It was the third time he'd seen that symbol, only this time it wasn't scrawled on a map or carved into human skin. This time it was from a satellite image. Four hours after he'd shot Perry Dossie, Dew Phillips stood next to a Humvee, his booted feet on a dirt road that was frozen solid. A map and several satellite pictures were spread out on the vehicle's hood. Rocks had been placed on the pictures to hold them in place against the stiff, icy breeze that cut through the winter woods. Trees rose up on either side of the road, trees thick with undergrowth, crumbling logs and brambles. Bare branches formed a skeletal canopy over the road, making the dark night even darker. The occasionally strong gust of wind knocked chunks of wet snow from the branches, dropping them on the assemblage below. Two Humvees, an unmarked black communications van, and sixty armed soldiers. Around you stood the squad and platoon leaders of Bravo Company, from the 1187th Infantry Battalion. The battalion was also known as the Leader Rakasans, an element from the 3rd Brigade of the 101st Airborne Division out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky. The Rakasans were the current Division Ready Force, or DRF, a battalion that stood ready to deploy anywhere in the world within 36 hours, regardless of location. The fact that the deployment location happened to be about 620 miles from Fort Campbell, and not thousands of miles across an ocean, made them that much faster. A pair of C-130 Hercules transport planes from the 118th Airlift Wing had taken off from Nashville less than two hours after Dew's panic call to Murray Longworth. Those C-130s landed at Campbell Army Airfield 30 minutes after takeoff. 30 minutes after that, loaded with the first contingent of the 1187th, the C-130s took off for Caro Municipal Airport, an active airport not quite two miles from where Dew now stood. Back at the tiny airport, more C-130s were landing. It would take 15 or so sorties and several more hours to bring in the entire battalion task force. But Dew wasn't waiting for the full battalion. With four sorties complete, he had 128 soldiers and four Humvees. That was the force available, and those were the men he was taking in. Most of those men wore serious expressions, some tainted with a hint of fear. A few still thought this was a surprise drill. These were highly trained soldiers Dew knew, but all the training in the world don't mean jack squat if you've never been in the shit. All the squad leaders, at least, had seen serious action. He could tell that by their calm, hard-eyed expressions, but most of the men carried the nasty aura of combat newbies. Their leader was the battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Ogden. Normally a captain commanded the first company in, but the urgency, the unknown enemy, and the fact that they were operating on American soil demanded Ogden's direct attention. A gaunt man in his forties, Ogden was so skinny the fatigues almost hung on him. He looked more like a prisoner of war than a soldier, but he moved quickly, he spoke with authority, and his demeanor was anything but weak. His skinniness was also deceiving. He could go toe-to-toe with any of the young bucks in his unit, and they all knew it. Duke could sense that Ogden had seen action and plenty of it. He was grateful to have a seasoned combat veteran in charge. So why are we here? Ogden asked. What's so special about this place? 
You got me, Dew said. All we know is that there were cases in Detroit, Ann Arbor, and Toledo. Wajamig is easy travel distance from all those, and there's a lot of farmland and forest around here. Huge tracts of space for them to hide in. We think they're gathering. Either the human hosts or possibly as hatchlings, maybe both. On the helicopter ride from Ann Arbor, Dew had talked to Murray and filled him in on what little they knew about the hatchlings. Murray initially demanded that Dew keep the info from the ground troops, as they didn't have clearance, but Dew fought and quickly won that argument. He wasn't leading men into battle who didn't know if they might be shooting at American civilians or some inhuman monstrosity. Which of the two was worse? Dew couldn't really say. What's the story on our air support, Lieutenant? Ogden checked his watch. We have three AH-64 Apache attack helicopters. ETA is 20 minutes. A company of the 1130th Army National Guard out of Morrisville is doing live fire exercises in Camp Grayling, about 120 miles northwest of here. Armament? Each bird has eight AGM-114 Hellfire missiles with heat warheads. Do nodded. 24 anti-tank missiles would make a really big bang. Plus, each Apache had a 30mm chain gun that could take out an armored personnel carrier from 4 kilometers away. All in all, that provided exceptional air support for this mission. He had ground forces. He had air support en route. The Michigan State Police were throwing a cordon over the area, evacuating residents and keeping everyone else out. Ogden picked up a satellite photo. It showed the warm colors of an infrared shot. Most of the photo consisted of the blues and greens typical of a nighttime forest, but in the middle was a bright cluster of reds with a strange pattern the squints had outlined in white. The pattern was very similar to that found on the woman's map, on Dossie's map, and carved into Dossie's arm. The squints had also marked what measurements they knew, width approximately 135 feet, length approximately 180 feet, height unknown. Dew looked at those measurements and thought of Gwyn's painting. Would it be made out of people parts? Was the painting symbolic or literal? Ogden tapped the photo. And that's what we're going after? Dew nodded. So what is it? Ogden asked. Dew shrugged and tapped another photo, showing a different angle of the strange construct. We don't know. We think it might be some kind of doorway. The victim was raving about a doorway in Wajamega, and we found this. Are you fucking kidding me? Ogden asked. A doorway. Like a portal or something. Are we talking Star Trek shit here, Dew? Dew shrugged. Don't ask me. All I know is that if you'd seen what I'd seen, you'd know why we're here. You have a problem with that? No, sir. A mission is a mission. He carefully examined the picture. Those four crossbeams, whatever they are, run directly east-west. Is that significant? How the hell should I know? All I know is we gotta blow it up. Ogden leaned closer to the picture. No telling how tall it is. You got a normal shot? Dew produced a detailed picture of the same area, the resolution so fine it revealed individual branches of the bigger trees. The strange design was visible, but barely, its green and black shading blending into the natural ground colors. This one had been taken by Aerial Recon, not even an hour earlier. Intel guys had highlighted the construct. The area around it was a patch of exposed forest floor surrounded by the whiteness of winter woods. Five yellow circles marked vehicles spread across the map. Three cars, a pickup, and an RV. That construct, or whatever it is, melted the snow, Ogden said. It's hot, all right. 
The damn thing blends in so much it almost looks camouflaged. What are those mocked vehicles? Abandoned cars, Dew said. Local police found them. Nobody home. We think that the triangle holes drove them here, ditched them, then walked to the construct. What about all these little red dots on the infrared shot? Those are the hostiles, Dew said. He produced a sheaf of papers. Each held a composite artist's rendering based on Dew's brief glimpse of the burning creature that fell from the third-story window. He didn't know it yet, but the picture was a passable representation of the hatchlings. He passed the sheets out to the squad leaders. The red dots are individual heat signatures, either human hosts or some that looks like these critters. A soldier saw the sketch and laughed out loud. Dew fixed him with a death stare. His voice took on a new and dominant tone. He'd commanded boys just like these and seen them die by the truckloads. You think this shit is funny? These things are responsible for the death of at least 15 people. And if you don't get your shit straight, you'll probably be dead within the hour. The soldier fell silent. The only sound came from wind hissing through the barren branches. Ogden pushed the satellite photos out of the way and smoothed the map. If I may suggest, sir, we should break into primary assault groups of eight squads, which will attack from the west, and two containment groups of two squads each, one north and one southeast of the target. Ogden tapped three spots on the map. Here, here, and here. The woods are too thick to get the vehicles in, so it's all on foot. We have enough men in place for containment groups one and two. Containment group three is at the airport. They will move out shortly and can be in position in 15 minutes. Artillery will be guns up in 30 minutes. The Apaches will be here before the infantry sets up the full perimeter, so they'll stay on station about a mile out. Once artillery is ready, we send in recon to take a shitload of pictures, then paint the target with a laser and have the Apaches blow the living piss out of it. After that, West Containment Group moves in and we clean up. Dew stared at the map for a moment. Ogden had the West Group moving in from a hill, giving them the high ground. If the hatchlings ran, they would probably follow the easiest path, a narrow valley that ran north to southeast, and that would take them directly into a killing zone of dug-in squads. That's an excellent plan. You tell your men to kill anything that moves. What about the host that drove here? Ogden asked. They're civilians. Dew looked hard at Ogden. Like I said, anything that moves. Dew turned to face the men again. You've all seen the picture. Whether you believe it or not, doesn't matter. We don't know how dangerous these things are, so soon they are dangerous in the extreme. The looks on the soldiers' faces said it all. Half of them simply didn't believe they were about to go up against some movie monster. The other half did believe it, and those men had wide-eyed expressions of fear. You keep your lines tight, Ogden said. Know where your man is on your right and your left. Shoot anything in front of you. It doesn't matter if it looks like a critter or your Aunt Jenny. It's the enemy, and you shoot it just like you would an enemy soldier. Now get your squads ready. We move out immediately. The grim-faced young men hurried away, leaving only Ogden and Dew. You know what's fucked up here, Dew? Dew nodded. Yeah, just about every last bit of this thing. Besides that, of course... If this is some kind of gateway, like they're going to bring in troops through that crazy thing or what have you, why the hell would they build it two miles from a landing strip? Dew grunted once. He'd been so thrilled at the easy access, that question hadn't crossed his mind. Maybe it's above their pay grade. The only thing that makes sense is they just didn't know. Whoever they had run recount on this, 
That party either just plain missed the airport or didn't know what it was. Ogden nodded. Yeah, that's gotta be it. Kinda weird, though. They're obviously high-tech as hell and they screwed themselves with location, location, location. I don't know what these things are, but looks like we're kicking their ass on intel. Dew nodded. The satellite images gave him total command of the area. Images he wouldn't have had if not for Margaret Montoya's hunch. Without her demands, they would still be trying to bring a satellite online and might not know the exact location of the construct for several hours. Dew Phillips had a feeling that every second mattered. The door to the black communications van flew open. A man ran out, a printout clutched in his fist. He slid on the frozen dirt road, regained his balance, and slammed the printout down on the Humvee's hood. That thing just heated up in a hurry, the squint said. Here's an updated infrared. The picture looked almost the same, except the squint hadn't outlined the strange symbol. He didn't have to. Its lines blurred into a smudgy mess of reds, yellows, and oranges. It just turned on, Dew said. Move your men out, Ogden, right now. Move containment squads one and two into position as planned. We're not waiting for artillery or the third containment squad. We attack right now. Perry moaned softly in his sleep. A dozen electrodes taped to his head and chest measured his every movement. Heavy canvas straps pinned his wrist to the hospital bed. His arms flexed and twitched every few seconds, pulling at the straps. An electrical beep echoed his pulse. The hum of medical equipment hung in the room. A man in a rackle suit stood on either side of him. Each held a taser stunner, but neither had any firearms or knives, or anything sharp for that matter. Couldn't be too careful. If Dossie broke the straps, a feat that really wouldn't have surprised anyone staring at his huge musculature, they would stun him into submission with 50,000 volts from the tasers. They'd stop the bleeding, but he was still touch and go. The bullets in each shoulder had been removed. His burns, including most of his head, were packaged in wet bandages. They'd pulled the triangle's carcasses from his arm and back. The visible rot had been scraped from his collarbone and leg, but the damage continued to slowly spread. That one, the doctors didn't know how to cure. His knee was slated for surgery the next day. And his penis was packed in ice. He moaned again. His eyes were squeezed tightly shut, his teeth bared in a wolf-like predator's warning. He was dreaming a dream that was both familiar and worse than ever. He was in the living room hallway again. The doors were closing in on him. The doors were hot. His skin blistered and bubbled, growing first red, then charring black, smoking with a putrid stench. But he didn't cry out in pain. He wouldn't give them the satisfaction. Fuck them. Fuck them all. He'd go out like a Dossie. The cancerous doors closed in, marching on their tiny tentacles, and Perry slowly roasted to death. You beat him, boy. In the dream, Perry opened his eyes. Daddy was there. No longer skeletal, but sturdy and solid, and as full of life as he'd been before Captain Cancer came a-courting. Daddy, Perry said weakly. He tried to take a breath, but the broiling air scorched his lungs. Every fiber of his being hurt. When would the pain end? You did good, boy, Jacob Dossie said. You did real good. You showed them all. You beat them. The doors moved closer. Perry looked at his hands. The flesh seemed to sag, then melt into a flaming puddle. It fell from his bones and sizzled when it hit the ground. 
He refused to cry out. After you cut off your own cock and balls, all pain is relative. The doors moved closer. Perry heard the creak of old wood and ancient iron, the low moan of hinges frozen shut with centuries of rust. It was hard, Daddy. Yes, it was hard, but you did what no one else could have done. I never told you this before, but I'm proud of you. I'm proud to call you my son. Perry closed his eyes as he felt the flesh of his body sag and start to fall away. The tunnel filled with an emerald green light. He opened his eyes. Daddy was gone, and the doors were opening. There was something moving in there. Perry looked inside and started to scream. They were almost here. Dew and Charles Ogden lay flat on the snow-covered forest floor. It was cold as a bitch. Dew stared through night-vision binoculars, the green-tinted picture sending goosebumps racing under his heavy winter fatigues. I don't know what the fuck that thing is, but it can't be good. Got any more wise-ass cracks about Star Trek, Charlie? Nope, I'm good. We getting any radiation readings? Ogden shook his head. No, at least not this far away. Geiger counters show nothing. Dude, what the hell is that thing? I got an idea like I told you before, but I hope to all that's holy that I'm wrong. He couldn't shake Dossie's mad ravings about a door. Dew glanced behind him. Two soldiers worked compact digital cameras, sweeping the lenses across the nightmarish scene. There were two such cameramen with each platoon. You getting all this? Dew asked. Yes, sir, the men answered in unison, both their voices small and filled with awe. The hatchlings were bustling around a pair of monstrous oak trees that dripped with melted snow. The tree's dead branches formed a skeletal awning reaching out and over, perhaps as many as 50 hatchlings of various sizes, some as small as the one he'd seen jump from the third-story apartment, some almost four feet tall, with tentacle legs as big around as baseball bats. Jesus Christ, Dew thought, 50 and we thought we'd got them all. How many hosts to make 50 of these things? How many hosts went totally undetected until they hatched? The hatchlings had built something strange, something organic, maybe even alive. Thick, fibrous green strands, some the size of ropes, some the size of I-beams, ran in all directions, from the trunks to the ground of the branches and back again. There had to be thousands of them, like some monstrous, three-dimensional spider web or a modern artist's jungle gym. At the center of all these strands, between the towering, sprawling oaks, was the construct that had generated the colored pattern on the infrared picture. Made from the same strange, fibrous material, the construct had the primitive, ominous aura of a Stonehenge or an Aztec temple. The four crossing lines, the ones that ran east-west, were high arches, the apex of the smallest one near the construct's center reaching just over ten feet. The tallest arch, the one at the open end, rose a good 20 feet into the night sky. The four arches looked like a framework cone half buried in the frozen forest ground. He didn't know what the freakish thing was made of, but at least it wasn't people. The two parallel pieces of the tail, for lack of a better word, stretched back some 30 yards from the arches. They were each as thick as a log and had a line of thin, spiky growths running down their lengths. The hatchlings crawled about the massive construct, clinging with their tentacle legs, a moving mass scampering across the strand maze with the ease of darting wolf spiders. 
they splashed through the suddenly muddy forest floor. The heat from the construct had melted all the snow around the two oak trees. Dew and Ogden were about fifty yards from the construct, staring straight into the cavern created by the arches. How far out are the Apaches? Dew asked Ogden. Ogden waved to his radio man, who quietly moved over and handed Ogden a handset. Ogden whispered for a few seconds, then said, ETA, two minutes. The seconds ticked by. Dew heard the faint approach of the Apache's rotors. The hatchlings suddenly scattered from the skeletal green construct, some taking refuge in the sprawling oaks, others staying on the ground. What's happening? Did they hear the choppers? Maybe so. Let your men know it's go time. We might have to... Dew's voice trailed off. The construct started to glow. The fibrous arches illuminated the oak branches and the forest floor with a suffused white light. Faint at first, barely discernible, the glow quickly grew so bright that Dew couldn't look through the night vision binoculars. Dew, what the hell is going on in there? Dew shook his head. I don't know, but I don't like it. Let's take two squads forward. We have to get a better look. Ogden softly called out orders. Dew rose to a crouch and quickly moved forward, ignoring his popping knees. The snow crunched and dry branches snapped underfoot. He was painfully aware of how quiet the airborne soldiers were in comparison, almost silent despite the noisy footing. Once upon a time, Dew would have moved through the woods without a sound. Getting old was a bitch and a half. He stopped after advancing 30 yards. The cover of night was gone. The construct's glow lit up the two oak trees as bright as day. Long shadows radiated away into the forest. The very ground itself seemed to vibrate with an ominous rhythm, a rapidly pulsing heartbeat of some monstrous evil. Dew felt a sense of trepidation, of wrongness, like he'd never known before. Give me some normal binoculars, Dew snapped. Someone handed him a pair that were, of course, army green. He stared into the depths of the archway, where the light was brighter than anywhere else, so bright it hurt his eyes and he had to squint to see anything at all. Ogden, ETA on the Apaches? Sixty seconds. A blast of anxiety ripped through Dew's body. He'd never felt fear like this, never felt anything like this. Even in the midst of the hand-to-hand fighting that had wiped out his platoon back in Nam, even when he'd been shot, he hadn't been this scared, and he couldn't say why. The construct grew still brighter. One of the soldiers suddenly dropped his M4 rifle and ran, screaming, back into the forest. Several of the others slowly stepped backward, fear wrapped up in their young faces. Hold your positions, Ogden shouted. Next man to run gets shot in the back. Now get down! The bounce of long shadows betrayed the motion of the hatchlings sprinting towards the platoon. Their strange, pyramid bodies slid through the woods. Like swarming insects, they detected a threat and were rushing out to meet it, to protect the hive. Ogden, we've got company! Squads four and five, hold this position! Ogden shouted. All other squads move forward to support! Fire at will! Gunfire erupted before he finished the last sentence. Dew didn't move. The construct's glow didn't fade, but it changed, sliding from the blinding white to a deep emerald green glow. Suddenly, Dew realized he was looking not just into the arch, but beyond it. The field of green reached far off into the distance. Stunned, he glanced up from the binoculars. The construct hadn't moved, neither had the woods behind it. He again peered through the binoculars. 
The field of green was inside the arch, but stretched back for what must have been miles. But that was impossible. Simply impossible. M4 carbines and M249 machine guns roared all around him, but do remain steadfast. A man's scream filled the night as one of the hatchlings made it past the hail of bullets. Dew didn't flinch, or even notice, because he saw something in that field of green. He saw movement. Not the movement of a single hatchling, but movement so massive that it was the field of green. His eyes picked out individual creatures a fraction of a second at a time, like seeing a single ant in the midst of a swarming, angry hill. It was an ocean of creatures, reaching for the archway, pouring forward from some impossible distance. There must be millions of them, Dew muttered, the horror creeping across his skin like a coat of millipedes. A gun erupted only a few feet from his ear, shattering his trance-like focus. A hatchling rolled almost to his feet, flopping and twitching. Ogden had shot at dead just as it leaped to attack. The surrounding gunfire slackened, but was replaced by more screams. The hatchlings swarmed in. We're being overrun, Ogden said calmly, his voice raised only enough to be heard over the shrieks and battle cries of his own men. Ogden, call in a full strike now! Tell the Apaches to fire everything they've got! Everything they've got! Ogden grabbed the handset from the radio man. Dude drew his forty-five. A four-foot-high hatchling ripped through a patch of underbrush, its black eyes fixed with fury, its tentacles whipping forward as it closed for the attack. Dew fired five times at point-blank range. The black, pyramid-shaped body shredded like soft plastic, spilling great gouts of viscous purple liquid on the snowy ground. Sounds came from all directions. Gunfire, pounding feet, branches breaking howls of pain, desperate pleas for help, and the horrific clicking and chittering noises of the hatchlings. He turned to see a hatchling closing in on a fallen and bleeding soldier. Dew double-tapped, firing twice, dropping the hatchling. As Dew ejected his empty magazine and loaded another, the wounded soldier drew his knife and threw himself on the hatchling, driving the blade in again and again until purple streamers arced across the white snow. Eyes scanning for the next target, Dew backed up to Ogden, trying to protect him long enough to call in the airstrike. Lead a six to Pigeon One! Lead a six to Pigeon One! Ogden said into the handset. Full strike! I repeat, full strike on the main target! Hit it with everything you've got! As if on cue, the gunfire suddenly stopped. Dew looked for an enemy and found none standing. A few hatchlings twitched on the ground, but their struggles were soon ended by shots from the angry soldiers. Men lay bleeding and moaning on the forest floor. The skirmish was over. Dew raised the binoculars just as he heard the rapid-fire roar of the Apaches launching their missiles. The sea of green had reached the archway. For one brief millisecond, Dew saw something he'd never forget, never be able to block out, for as long as he lived. It was at least eight feet tall, an L-shaped, segmented red body covered in a strange green iridescent shell that must have been armor. Six thick, multi-jointed legs on the ground and four strong arms clutching what looked like a weapon. What might have been its head was covered with a helmet made from the same iridescent green material, a helmet that had no holes for eyes or mouth. And there were millions right behind it, waiting to pour out. It was the only look he got. The first creature stepped out of the arch. The impossible became a reality as the foot set down on the forest floor. Like watching in slow motion, Dew saw the clawed foot step on a twig. The twig snapped, 
Then the sky opened up. Sixteen missiles smacked home in the span of three seconds. The roar of a dying god, a fireball so huge and violent, it knocked small trees right out of the ground, roots and all. The concussion wave picked Dew up and threw him like a straw doll. Soldiers fell all around him. He hit the frozen ground hard but ignored the pain and rolled to his knees. The fireball rose into the sky, lighting up the forest with the glow of a late evening sun. A chunk of arch rose majestically into the air, spinning wildly, one end trailing fire and sparks. Two of the arches were completely gone. One stood tall, and one was shattered but half-standing, sticking out of the ground like a cracked and broken rib. A fusillade of Apache chain gun fire ripped through the site, each 30-millimeter bullet kicking up a small geyser of mud. The broken arch, the one that looked like a rib, fell to the ground and shattered into a dozen pieces. Dew stared desperately through the binoculars. Were they gone? Had the missiles hit in time? He cursed the smoke as he hunted for the movement, the movement of a million creatures spreading out through the trees, attacking. The whistling roar of another missile barrage filled the air. Dew looked up in time to see eight more glowing smoke trails streaking towards the archway like striking ethereal snakes. The missiles slammed home, sending up another roaring fireball. Dew threw himself face down on the ground as clods of dirt, sticks, and maybe even green strands sailed overhead with lethal speed. And then it was over. The last fireball floated up into the sky like a miniature dying sun. In a zombie-like daze, Dew stood and moved forward. The green light had vanished. Someone had shut that door and shut it with authority. Daddy was gone as well, this time for good. He somehow knew that for certain. Perry's eyes fluttered open. For the first time in a week, his thoughts were his own. The pain was gone, but he knew that was because of the drugs. Pain is the body's way of letting you know something's wrong, but he was more in tune with his body now, and he didn't need the pain to tell him he was in trouble. The voices were gone, but the echoes of some fifty screams remained. The hive at Wajamiga had been wiped out. He felt their absence. Like a fever finally breaking, their destruction released him from the madness. Some of it, anyway. He weakly turned his head enough to see the biosuit-clad men on either side of his bed. He was tied down. Couldn't move his arms. The room was all white. Wires seemed to run off his body in every direction. A hospital. A hospital. He'd done it. He'd won. A voice came over a loudspeaker. Mr. Dossie, can you hear me? Perry nodded, slowly and dreamily. My name is Margaret Montoya. I am in charge of your recovery. Perry smiled, like anyone could recover from what he'd been through. It's over, Mr. Dossie. You can rest now. It's all over. Perry laughed out loud. The drugs weren't all that, apparently, as the laugh brought a stab of pain from deep within his right shoulder. Over? No. Not over. It wasn't over, baby cakes, not by a long shot. Not a fucking howdy-doody chance of that. The Wajamiga nest was gone, but they weren't all gone. Somehow, he could still sense them. He could hear their calls, their signal to gather, to build. Far away and faint, but he could still sense it. It was only beginning. No bow to doubt it. Blackened tree trunks burned in the aftermath, their branches ripped free by the force of the blast. 
the two proud oaks were devastated. One was completely aflame, its remaining branches a crowd of fire reaching into the night sky. The other was split in two, white wood exposed to the winter cold. Chunks of the green strands littered the ground, most burning fast with a sparkling, bluish flame. A few soldiers appeared, walking slowly through the lifting smoke, their M4 rifles sweeping in continuous, cautious arcs. The cries of wounded men filtered through the air, mingling with the sound of crackling fires. Fighting back the fear, Dew walked to the area where the archway had stood. There was no sign of the creatures, no sign of the green glow that had stretched outward into infinity. Ogden approached him, moving through the smoke, his demeanor as calm as if he were strolling through his own backyard. He held the handset to his ear, the radio man following him like a lonely puppy. We count 56 hatchlings, all dead. Some may have gotten through when we were overrun, but the rear guards didn't see any, so it looks like we got them all. 56, Dew mumbled. We lost eight men, six from the hatchling attack, two from shrapnel caused by the rocket strike, another 12 wounded, maybe more. 56, Dew said again, his voice distant and strange. I'm going to check on the wounded. I'm ordering the Apaches back a half mile and calling an evac for the more seriously wounded. Fine, Dew said. That's fine. Ogden strode off, calling out orders in his calm, commanding voice, leaving Dew alone in the center of the obliterated archway. Dew stared at the carnage, at the dwindling flames and shook his head. There were that many here, he thought. How many more are out there? How many more hatchlings on the way, waiting to build another one of these doorways? Dew didn't know the answer. For the first time, Malcolm's death seemed insignificant, a small loss in comparison to the massive threat looming on the horizon. He was exhausted. Too much action for an old fart. And there would be no rest, not for a long time. Not for him. Not for anyone. Hello there, listener. This is Scott Sigler, the narrator and author of Infected. That's the end of the story. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope it was worth your time. I started out podcasting my books when I didn't have a big publisher behind me and had to read everything myself in order to get it done. And I've continued along those same lines, and I really insisted that I be able to read this for all of you. I think I did an okay job, although I'm pretty sure that people will never, ever stop ripping on me for my female voices. I do try and give each character a different voice, because I think that adds to the overall enjoyment of the book. I think it's fun to be able to know when a different person is speaking, just on the tone of the voice. So even though the female voices may not be great, I did the best I could to make it entertaining for you. My deepest hope with this whole project is that you were entertained enough to want to buy my next book. The story of Perry, Dew, Margaret, Amos, and Agenato will be continued in the sequel to Infected, which is called Contagious. Contagious should be published in April of 2009. I also continue to give away weekly podcasts of my fiction for free, which you can get at scottsigler.com. If you're not familiar with podcasting and you're listening to this audiobook, it's definitely something you want to check out because it's simply a way to get audio files sent right to your computer and you can listen to them there or you can put them on a handheld MP3 player or other electronic device and listen to them as you go. So whether you bought the CD set in a bookstore, you bought it online, or you downloaded the audio novel, 
Or you saw some kid with it sticking out of his backpack and you ran out and knocked him off his bike and took it for yourself. I really hope that you enjoyed the novel. Time is the most valuable resource any of us can have, and I appreciate you giving me your time to listen to this book. Thanks again, and I really hope you enjoyed it. You have been listening to Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.